Welcome to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. Our desire is to reflect the grace and truth of Jesus Christ to Los Angeles and the world, and one way we do this is by sharing God's Word through our weekly sermons. Here is today's message. Good morning, everybody. Good to be here with you this morning. Um, if you're listening attentively, you've probably already heard the, uh, the cry of Mariah Carey. Uh, Christmas season is upon us. We are starting our, our Advent series. It's been a tradition of the chapel to participate in Advent as part of our, our um, experience as a church. Uh, we, are, we are not um, a church that talks a lot about the church calendar. Uh, if you know much about sort of the tradition of Western um, or just all, all Christianity, uh, the many, many churches divide the calendar of the year up into you know, festivals and feasts and different things like that. We don't really pay too close attention to that, but we do for uh, Easter and we do for Advent. Uh, and there's, there's a reason for that. I, I, I thought we, um, during our Advent reading, uh, Luann shared a few of the Thinking behind, uh, or thinking behind that, but I thought I'd reiterate it quickly just so, so that you guys are aware. There is um, something valuable about tradition. Now, in, in our sort of post-Reformation Christianity, uh, a lot of times tradition is associated with, um, you know, sort of a dead version of Christianity, like these mindless rituals and blind adherence to whatever's gone on in the past. And certainly, tradition can be like that. It can be like that. Um, you know that, that the famous story of the uh, woman at Thanksgiving who uh, cut the, the two ends off of her turkey before cooking it, uh, and her husband asked her why she did that, and she said, because my mom did. And then they went and asked their mom, why did you, why did you cut the ends off? She said, because my mom did. So they went and asked the grandma, and she said, well, I cut it off because um, it didn't fit into my pan. <laughs> That's an example of how tradition can be uh, something that uh, just kind of blindly followed. Um, however, if we, uh, tradition that is done with open eyes to the meaning, the history of it, it connects us into uh, the, the whole tradition of the church since the very beginning. Uh, so people have celebrated Advent season and the, and the birth of Jesus for 2,000 years. And in, in this sort of cycle of the year, reminding ourselves of his first appearance in the world so that we can be focused on the day when he will make his second appearance, the day when he will return. The church has brought that into their practice as, a, as an annual thing. Uh, and, and so by, by joining with that, we're sort of connecting ourselves to churches all over the world and then backwards all through history in what we're doing here. Uh, and then another good reason to celebrate Advent is that the world around us, if you haven't noticed, is also celebrating Advent right now. They're doing so in their own way, with their own traditions, their own values expressed. If you watched any um, college football yesterday, you probably got a full dose of a secular, worldly Advent ceremony uh, uh, like presented to you. Right? And so we want to counter the, the secular version of Advent, the secular celebration of Christmas, now, it's not to say that everything about the way that our culture celebrates Christmas is evil and wrong. There, there are good things that are present in it. Uh, but we want to remind ourselves of what, what, this, um, 
what this time is and uh, serve as, as a counterbalance to a very powerful message that we're receiving every day um, throughout this season. Anyway, so that's, that's a, a sort of a, a reason why we're doing Advent. Now, the theme of our Advent uh, series this year is the manger and the cross. And, and the reason that we've chosen that theme is that we want to emphasize uh, that the birth of Jesus is the beginning of a work that is completed on the cross. Uh, and so his, his birth is good news because it culminates in what he does. Uh, and so during this series, we're going to be uh, looking into um, different places in the Old Testament in which birth stories happen, stories of sons that are born, and how those lives are shadowed by death. And so looking at these stories from the Old Testament of, of births that are shadowed by death, how does that prepare us for the birth of the one who was born to die? That's uh, sort of the purpose of our series. Sound good? All right, well, let's get into it then. Um, if you are willing and able, would you stand this morning? We're going to read our text for this morning. Today we're going to be looking at the very first birth story in the Bible. Okay, so this is a reading from Genesis chapter 3. Verses 15 through Genesis chapter 4, verses 16. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought forth to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood in your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, today as we, alongside the church all over the world, as we enter into a remembrance of the day long ago in which you entered the earth, in which you came and made yourself known in your Son, Jesus Christ. As we remember that, Would you speak to us today as we consider how the meaning of this season, or how it it, it counters what we hear from around us, would you speak? Lord, as we look ahead to the day in which you will once again return, will you speak? We long to hear your voice. We want this season, this time of Advent, to be a time of rich reflection in which the voice that we hear from you, the power of your spirit, is stronger, deeper than the voice we hear of the Advent season that is around us in the world. God, let us not be distracted now. the voice of commercialism, commodification, all the powers at work in the world that would distract us from what this season means. As we have gathered today, would you speak? Be with our brothers and sisters all over the world that are celebrating this season. May the gospel be preached in our city and across the world. May the name of Jesus be lifted up here and everywhere. In your name we pray. What is your favorite Christmas movie? And why is it The Muppets Christmas Carol? Can I get an amen on that? Anyone share with me a love uh, for The Muppets Christmas Carol? Oh, there it is up there. Now, I, I, I think this movie is fantastic. There's a couple reasons. First of all, you've got the great Michael Caine who is absolutely not phoning it in. Even though he's in a movie in which his co-star is Kermit the Frog, he is giving it his all. I mean, he gives a great performance in this movie. Now, if you add to that, great songs, and of course, you know, your, your typical uh, humor that you get whenever the Muppets are on screen, 
uh, and then take that and combine it with just some of the greatest source material that's ever been written. And you've got a recipe uh, for a truly great Christmas movie. I, I love Muppets Christmas Carol. I watch it every year. Maybe it's just uh, nostalgia, though. I don't know. I did see it when I was very when I was young, uh, and you know the stuff you watch when you're young sometimes marks you in ways that makes you unable to actually determine whether it is good or not later in life. <laughs> well, you you know the story that this is based on the the, the Charles Dickens story, uh, written in 1843. It's one of the most adopted stories in history. Everyone has made a version of this movie. In fact, just this year, a couple days ago, a new version of it came out on, uh, with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds, uh, a musical version that's kind of a, a play on this, this old theme, this old idea. It's, it's a very resonant story, right? It, it plays on a lot of the, the concerns that, that mark Charles Dickens' writing and which have a certain timelessness to them. First of all, his, his uh, compassionate portrayal of uh, dignity in the midst of poverty, uh, his um, sort of beating heart for uh, social concerns, uh, his commentary on the just the soul-destroying nature of materialism, uh, and then of course the the possibility uh, that that um, we could be redeemed, that we can we can be transformed, we can be changed. And these are very uh, resonant themes. Uh, now. A Christmas Carol is also remarkable for another reason. Another reason. Now, keep in mind, this was written in 1843. A Christmas Carol is considered today the first truly secularized Christmas story. In other words, it's a story about Christmas that celebrates a sort of social, societal celebration of Christmas in which the actual story of Christmas is absent. Now, at no point in this story, go back and read the Charles Dickens story, there, there is scarcely even an allusion to the, the Christian account that, that it, you know, is the basis of the holiday Christmas. So it, it, for the first time here, we have a fully secularized Christmas story. Now, it has been, uh, this model, of course, has been taken over to the point where now today, if you watch a Christmas story, if you go and watch a Christmas movie of any kind, and it actually has some sort of religious component to it, it's like shocking, right? Like if you watch uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, anyone watch Charlie Brown Christmas? If you're watching this movie, it's a typical, you know, kind of vaguely Christmassy story. Uh, and then all of a sudden in the middle of it, Linus gets up and he reads the Bible story. I mean, it's, it's like shocking. It comes out of nowhere. We, we, <laughs> By the way, it's, that's another great Christmas uh, cartoon if you need a good one. Now, I, I, it, it, I've, always, I've always just found it so, so curious that like, we, we, this, this holiday um, has been drained of any sort of religious component to it. Um, I, I can't imagine other religious, this happening to other religious holidays. Like, could you imagine like a Ramadan that's like fully secularized Ramadan, like it's disconnected from uh, Muhammad and the Quran. I, I just, I, I can't understand it. Um, anyway, I don't want to go off on a tangent on that. How, uh, however, I, 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 do, I do think that, that you know, part of what we're doing in Advent, as I said earlier, is we're, we're countering that. Uh, and uh, I, th let me just read what, what I actually said uh, in, or what, what, what uh, Luann read today in our, 
in our Advent reading. She said, Advent is a weekly counter to the secular story of Christmas, purifying and ennobling what is good in it, and correcting and rebuking what is harmful. That's kind of what we want to do this morning. So first, though, we have to figure out what is the secular account of Christmas. When you, when you, re, when you go and watch almost any Christmas movie, what, what's the story that's being told to you? What are you sort of unconsciously absorbing? Uh, you know, because when we watch these stories, we understand innately what's going on in them. Okay, so let's, let's make that sort of subconscious understanding of what's happening in the Christmas movies explicit. All right? This is, what, this is my account of what happens in, in a typical Christmas movie, going all the way back to a, a Charles Dickens' a Christmas Carol. Okay? There is a sort of uh, Christmas spirit that like, exists out, out somewhere. It's Christmas spirit. Uh, and that, that spirit represents a sort of pure love. Uh, typically, the context for this love family or between close friends. And it's a love that's marked by selflessness, uh, generosity, a sort of, a sort of self-giving. Okay? That, that's, that's the Christmas spirit. Where exactly does it come from or where does it reside? That's, that's all very vague, but it's out there somewhere. Okay? Then you've got a protagonist who is somehow alienated from that Christmas spirit. They usually, it's like, have you ever watched any Hallmark Christmas movies, right? It's the, the, the businessman who's all business, business, business. And he's got to go back and visit, like, uh, you know, his hometown where he's, that's like where the pure Christmas spirit is, back in, in the small town, yeah. All right, so he's, he, he's gotten, he or she has gotten alienated from the, the true Christmas spirit. Uh, and they need to have some sort of experience brings them into a, a, a new self-awareness of how they've been alienated from the Christmas spirit. And then the story offers them an opportunity to change, to modify their behavior, to, to change their values. And so they, they undergo some sort of dramatic experience uh, in which their, their values are, are changed and they become this new person that is dedicated to a new course of behavior. Of course, and, and then the, the story kind of ends. You know, Scrooge gives away all his Christmas geese, uh, and then the implication is that for the rest of his life, uh, Scrooge has permanently changed. Uh, and now whether, you know, what, what exactly happens when the Christmas spirit fades away a little bit uh, is not really addressed in these movies. doesn't really matter. Yeah, how does that, how, how does that co contrast to the, the story of Christmas as it exists in the Bible? Well, it's very different. Now, on, you know, on one level, I'm sure we're all very, very familiar with uh, the stories, um, the Christmas story as it's laid out in the Bible. Um, there's always like a, a temptation when you're a preacher and you're, and you're like speaking on like something that you know everyone knows all about and has heard sermons about. You want to try and like find like a my own angle on it, my original take on it. Uh, so you, you hear this this all the time in Christmas sermons where people are like, "I want to show you again, like re rediscover the the true story of Christmas." Uh, well, that's that's what, uh, that is what I want to do. Uh, 
Hopefully I, we can do that, all right? We, we, these stories are very familiar, right? You, you know about Mary and Joseph. You know about their journey to Bethlehem. You know that Jesus was born in a manger because there was uh, a lack of space where he was. You know about the star that stood above uh, the you know, place where he was, the magi that came, how on the night he was born, the shepherds saw the, the angels in the sky and they came to worship him. These are, these are all very uh, familiar stories, okay? But what I want to emphasize, and what, what we're going to emphasize in this series, is that this, the story of Christmas is really the narrative of the entire scriptures. And what happens on Christmas Day, when Jesus is born, you know, it wasn't December 25th, by the way, just to clarify, but on, on the day when Jesus was born, all of history culminates at that moment. And everything that comes in the Old Testament is preparatory for it. It's, it's, it's like leading you to expect it and to be ready for it. And everything that comes after that moment is explaining it and, and, and making it, uh, you, know, you know, bringing it into the history of the world. So that moment, the story of Christmas, connects to the story of all the scriptures. It is remarkable, remarkable the scriptures, how many stories of births there are. The Old Testament is full, full of narratives about sons being born. In haunting these stories, there is death. Now, I know, you know, God, of all the events that occurred to God's people, the Bible selects a few Many, many more things happened to the characters in the Old Testament than actually are written down and recorded for us. Therefore, if God has decided in his control, in his superintending of Scripture, to include these birth narratives, and so many of them, and if indeed the, 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 the key event of the New Testament is a birth narrative as well, a story of a son being born, then I, I think we can look at these stories and help us learn things. About what Christmas means. Does that make sense? That's what we want to do in this series. Okay, so we are going to start by looking at the very first birth. We have Adam, we have Eve. Okay, they, they sin in the garden and they're cast out of it. When they are cast out, <clears throat> uh, they conceive, they give birth to a son whom they named Cain. When they conceive again, they give birth to a second son named Abel. Cain becomes a farmer, working the land. Abel becomes like a shepherd, and he has a flock. And these are the first two people that are born in the world, in all of history the first parents. So a few themes stand over their story. These themes, I think, will recur in all the birth narratives that we look at. Okay, so a few things stand over this story. First of all, catastrophe has befallen the created world through human sin. The world into which our first two sons are born 
is a world that has experienced a catastrophe. Adam and Eve, through their sin, have brought upon the world a curse. First of all, the land itself has been cursed. The created, the created substance of the very the world itself has been cursed by God. The New Testament says that the creation itself groans under human sin. <clears throat> it's a disaster for man. The two um, big commands that were delivered to Adam and Eve were to work, work the land and to be fruitful and multiply. And because of human sin, land has been cursed, their work has been made fruitless, and childbirth itself has been filled with pain and danger and loss. The two big tasks cursed by God. So catastrophe uh, has, has befallen the human world through sin. Another uh, theme that stands over this story is that salvation from catastrophe would come through offspring, through childbearing, through the birth of a son. Now, th this is the first promise that is issued in the Bible. The first time God makes a promise to his people, it's that through the offspring of the woman, what has happened to the world through sin would be undone. Now, that, that's a vague, it's a very vague promise. Okay, catastrophe has been following them. This catastrophe, will be, they'll be saved from it through childbearing. That's it's very vague. No further details are given at this point in history. But this is what they know. When, when Adam and Eve hold their children in their arms, they look at them and they say, through this, God is going to bring salvation for us. God is going to rescue us from the catastrophe that our sin has brought upon us. And then a third theme. Salvation. The salvation that is promised would involve death. Involve death. Adam and Eve, in their innocence, were naked. When they sin, their nakedness is a source of shame. This is, this is a, a metaphorical depiction of our condition here, with this, this imagery of nakedness and being covered. There is a need now for Adam and Eve to cover their shame, to no longer be naked. And the means that they, they provide for themselves to do that are inadequate. The coverings of leaves cannot cover their shame. And so what God does is before them, he kills the animal, skins it, and covers over their shame flesh of a dead animal. Then again, in, in, in the very promise itself, it said that the, the son, the offspring of the woman, that would undo the effects of sin, that in so doing, he would be harmed. So, so from the very beginning, there's an understanding that if, if God is approached, if, God, if we were to be reconciled to God, it must be through death. Through blood, through 
the flesh of another. So those three themes stand over our story today. Catastrophe has befallen the world because of sin. Salvation from this catastrophe will come through the offspring of the woman. And that this salvation will involve death in some way. Death in some way. So Cain and Abel, the first two, uh, let's, how do these themes work into the story of Cain and Abel? Now this also is a very famous story. Uh, you've probably heard it many times before. I, I, I want to make uh, an observation about it. The question emerges immediately. Why does God find favor with Abel's offering and reject Cain's offering? Okay, so Cain works in the field, um, and he has harvest, and he takes some of his harvest, and he comes and he brings it to God. Abel works in the flock, he kills one of his animals and brings the fat portion of it and offers it to God. Now, God has regard for Abel, but not for Cain. Why? Now, this is, again, there's been a lot of uh, debate around this question. Some people have thought maybe it's some sort of ancient rivalry between farmers and herdsmen that is being uh, prosecuted in the pages of Scripture. I, I don't think that's accurate. Uh, I think there's, there's, a, there's a pretty clear hint to what's happening here. Abel's sacrifice is accepted because it's according to the way that God has kind of laid out how sacrifice should work. When Adam and Eve approach him, it's because he's clothed them with dead animals. They've been covered over with a sacrifice of blood. So Abel, his act of offering, uh, approaching to worship God through the blood of an animal is an act of trust and faith in what God has done, what God has shown them, and what God has promised. God has said, I will be approached through the blood of a sacrifice. So Abel offers a sacrifice. Cain's offering, there is no blood simply the work of his hands. This is why in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. It's by faith because it's trust in, in what God has promised to do. It's trust in God's means of salvation, which is bound up with the sacrifice of blood. He believes that God is going to rescue him from the catastrophe of sin through some sort of sacrifice. And so he offers a sacrifice. Do you, do you see that? It's, it's, it's a response of faith to what God has promised to do. Cain's is not. Cain says, I will do something for myself, to bring it to God and ask that it be accepted on those terms. It's not an act of faith, but an act of his own works. So Abel is accepted, and Cain, Cain is rejected. 
another another um, thing that we can see in this text as well is that when when Cain in his anger um, in, in, in the rejection that he's experienced from God goes and murders Abel Abel's blood uh, spills out on the ground God says that like the ground has like soaked in Abel's blood and then he says that the blood of Abel cries out to me. It cries out to me. Now what is the meaning of the cry of the blood of Abel? What does Abel's blood say to God? Because God, God responds to this cry that comes forth from the, from the blood of Abel. Now we could see these, we could see this, this broad you know, salvation themes in this, right? We have Abel, the man of faith, who is, who is accepted by God, declared righteous because of his faith, because of his trust in what God will do. That faith is counted as righteousness, so he is enabled to approach God in worship. We have Cain who is rejected, and who kills the righteous one. A righteous son, rejected and killed by his own brother. This is a theme that will recur, that we will see in the life of Jesus. But when, when, when Abel's blood is spilled, it communicates something to God. We have to compare that to the blood of the son who would be spilled later, whose voice also spoke out to God. And what are these two things that blood says? What is being communicated here is that through the death of a son, there will be a message in the blood of that death that God will hear and God will respond to. In the case of Abel, it's a cry for vengeance. It's a cry of injustice. It's a commentary. Because you see, Abel has been declared righteous, and yet he has been killed. What does that say about the righteousness of God? Will God defend his own? Is there uh, only evil in approaching God to worship? Will the unrighteous one have the final victory? That's the cry of the blood. What, what will God do about that? <clears throat> now, in the book of Hebrews, it says that the blood of Jesus, the second son, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. But again, we could see the general pattern, that the son is killed and the blood demands something from God. In the case of Abel, it demands vengeance. And in the fullness of time, vengeance will come. In the case of Jesus, though, a better word is spoken. Something else is demanded. The ones for whom Jesus died. They are demanded back from God. He secures them with the blood of his sacrifice. <clears throat> so theologians um, like to talk about uh, the contrast between law and gospel. Law and gospel. This is a, a distinction that you'll often see um, if, you, if you read through like a, a systematic theology it was very important distinction 
that was made uh, during the Reformation. And uh, I think it's a very, very important idea. The, the idea is that there are two ways that humans can approach God. Two sort of uh, pathways through which they can come into his presence. And these two pathways are contrasting and conflicting with each other. They cannot be mixed. You cannot do a little bit of each. You can either choose one or choose the other. Either you can come to God through the law or you can come to God through the gospel. Well, the gospel is that thing that's initiated at the moment of sin, that thing that Abel trusted in, the plan of salvation through a son, through death. And that comes to full fruition in the fullness of time when Jesus is born on Christmas morning. Now, I, I think we could see this distinction if we return back to Christmas stories, the secularized story of Christmas that the world tells, and the story that we see in the Scripture. I think the secular story of Christmas is a story of law. What do I mean by that? What is offered? The, the, the Christmas spirit is something that sort of exists here in this world. Catastrophe has not really befallen the world, but a, a, a sort of salvation can be found here and now. And the means to which it comes is understanding yourself and changing your behavior and value. Through these sort of cathartic experiences, I could become a new person and sort of join with this spirit that is at work in the world. And if more and more people do this, the world will become a better, better place, and eventually heaven on earth will flourish. But you must do it. Scrooge has to keep giving away those Christmas geese all the days of his life, right? He has to keep going and going and going. He better hope that that encounter with the spirits of Christmas past is decisive. If he ever slips up again, it's right back. Now, in truth, in truth, the blood of Abel already cries out against Scrooge. The acts of injustices of his life have already condemned him. He could give away Christmas geese every day for the rest of his life. And he cannot atone for what he has done. The salvation that is offered in the secular account of Christmas, which I think is, is central, honestly. Honestly, it's just a, a retelling of the same old story. How do you, like, become saved? You have to become a better person. You have to change your values, change your behavior. And if enough people do that, this world will become a better place. That is not the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas is an invasion of the earth. This wicked place where catastrophe has befallen and whose only hope is the birth and the fullness of time of a son. And only through trusting in this, trusting in what God will do through this son, through death, only therein can we be saved. Only in him can we be transformed. Only in him can the world be transformed. 
birth of Jesus, the beginning of a life that culminates in death. Through that death comes salvation. This is the message that counters what we hear in the world. You see how it, it can incorporate and purify some of the good aspects of that story. The longing for, for a, a generous, self-giving love is a good thing. But only if we can find it in the faith that God has provided it in His Son. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the weekly teaching podcast of the Chapel at Pasadena. We are a church on a mission to revive believers, reach friends, and reflect Christ. If you would like more information about our church, visit www.chapelpasadena.com or email us at info at chapelpasadena.com.